Onasu. So as we continue our, our cycle, this afternoon we return to mindfulness of breathing in the second phase, following this Burmese technique, rising, focusing on the rise and fall of the abdomen. And I mentioned, I think it was just yesterday, the, the parable of the elephant and the cat. And this phase of the practice really does kind of separate the elephants from the cats. Because it's just not interesting. It's really just not that interesting. You're there at the rise and fall of the abdomen, so the sensations are not subtle enough that it arouses a real sharpness, a clarity, a brightness of awareness, and that gets interesting. As soon as your awareness is really you know, heightened, then anything can be interesting. But this is, you know, depending on the size of your belly, they're pretty coarse sensations. You know. And so you can either kind of surrender to it and say, all right, uh, it's kind of like a long, boring movie, and the plot never develops. You know, it's just the same plot. It keeps on going and going and going. And either you just kind of settle back into it and you say, aha, so this is it. This is really it. There's going to be no hedonic stimulation here at all. And the answer is, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> you know, this is it. Uh, then you either throttle back there and you say, okay, I'm no longer going to look in that direction for entertainment. I'm no, no longer going to look in that direction for anything interesting, fun, pleasurable, because I've just been told this is going to be one very long, boring movie for the whole session, and it's not going to get more interesting in terms of the sensations arising to meet you. In which case, you totally give up on that. In which case, either you start becoming bored, restless, agitated, or just start falling into rumination, which is you know the really rotten movie next door. Or you settle back and you just keep on releasing there. You know, just gently, persistently releasing the thoughts with every exhalation, settling in, and allow something co to come through the other door. And that is the eudaimonic, the genuine, not stimulus-driven, where you just kind of get into, and now here, here's the word, you get into the flow of it. You say, okay, it doesn't get hedonically, in terms of stimulation, in terms of appearances arising, it's not getting any better, but it is certainly getting calmer, and my body's getting looser, and it's getting more relaxed, and it's getting mellow. And then the mind's quieting down, and that's rather pleasant. Not very pleasant, but it's kind of pleasant. And it's pleasant enough. And if it's pleasant enough, then you're an elephant. Because then you're not thrashing around the surface trying to entertain yourself, nor are you just sinking like a stone in boredom and dullness and so forth. But kind of like, ah, this is it. This is a cool pool on a hot summer day. And that's good enough. you know. And just hanging out there. Now, in terms of the nine stages, this practice, really, relatively coarse practice, this can take you all the way to stage four. And there you are in stage four, half an hour, one hour. You're just never off the top. You're never off target. And not just in a good session now and then, but just normally. Occasionally you have a, a kind of a crummy session, then you slip back to stage three or two. You know, have indigestion or something comes up. And occasionally when you're at stage four, you'll have a spike up to stage five or maybe even a little taste of six, six. And then it falls back to your median, your normal. But your normal is just session after session you're right there and you're in flow. You're in flow, you know? And these, these initial qualities, primarily the relaxation and stability, cannot, just don't expect much of a vividness because you're not feeding the vividness. You're not challenging. You're not giving yourself something that's going to arouse the vividness because the sensations don't require it. The sensations are coarse. But you start to kind of savor, to 
be satisfied with, to, in a very mild way, enjoy the sheer the softness of it, the relaxation of it, the looseness of it, and then the peace as you're able to maintain that continuity of awareness and it's taking less and less effort, kind of a flow, and still there's that kind of buzz, you know, there's the thoughts coming and going and so forth and they pull at you a little bit, but, you, but you're like, you know, like a ship that has a good deep keel and you're just not turned upside down. Or another image I like is you're a, you're a 400 pound sumo wrestler and all of your mental afflictions are 50-pounders. And they're trying to come in and push you out of the circle, right? And you kind of just look at them. Are you kidding me? You're 50 pounds. I know you're a little gnarly, and you can be really nasty at times. But when all is said and done, I'm 400 pounds and you're 50 pounds. Good, good luck with that. You, know? you have that kind of confidence that whatever's coming up, it's not pushing me out of the circle. It's not going to throw me off my rocker. It's not going to induce coarse excitation. So this is really an area, I spoke, I think it was again just yesterday or very recently about these two core elements of having few desires and contentment. And that's the maker or breaker. When you're in retreat or when you're in session, just in a little retreat for 24 minutes, if you have that lack of desires to be doing anything else and the contentment that this is really what you'd most like to do for right now. Now, not for 16 hours a day, but right now when you're on the cushion, having that sense, right now there's nothing I'd rather do. They could have bins of ice cream over there, but right now I'd rather be doing this than bins of ice cream, etc. I'd really rather be doing this altogether, and that's contentment. You know, that's contentment. And so, as I said, this is kind of a uh, this is kind of a fork in the road. If you can develop the contentment and just rest and having few desires when you're doing this phase of the practice. You can ease into it, you can feel relaxed in it. And, and also when the session's over, then of course you, you break, but have a kind of sense, I'd be very happy to come back again, you know, see you soon. You know? And when you have, an, when you have a little lapse, like, I, I am this way, I, I don't make many claims about anything, but I can say that, oh, you know, if there's a 10 minutes, oh, good. If there's no email I have to do, because that's my master, but if there's no email, then, oh, good, I got 10 minutes. 10 minutes before lunch, yippee, and it's off to, you know, off to meditate for 10 minutes, because that's really what I'd rather do, and that, that's what I love about this place, is it's very pleasant, but there's just nothing to do. <laughs> you know? There's <laughs> just nothing to do. <laughs> and so, it's, so there's not a whole, whole, whole lot of competition, you know. So there it is. Uh, don't have much more to say about the practice, except for a little reminder and that is if you find it helpful. And it's just really an if. If you find it helpful, or insofar as you find it helpful, to be counting the breaths, okay? I would say really strongly suggest, make sure that the count is coming in just like a little punctuation mark, just like that. And apart from that little brief interruption, that one, two, apart from that, that your attention, your mindfulness, is really focused on the sensations of the breath. Because what very easily happens, I'm sure it happens a lot, is people get into, into the counting and really what they're winding up doing is having the chief focus of their attention be the counting and the breath is off to the side. Now that's really boring. You know, that's really boring. At least there's something soothing, especially when you get into the subtleties, and it is a relatively subtlety, I've said it so many times now, of releasing all the way through the end of the out-breath and having that sense of actually knowing you're doing it. So not only doing it, but knowing you're doing it. 
and that just total release. And there's the mudra, just hands out, open. And then the hands never clench. When the breath comes in, you're not thinking, oh, I better pull now, and then yanking it in. Exhale, inhaling, drawing it, you don't need to. That's the, that's the real beauty, but that's the sweet spot, is you release it with hands open. And then it's just given to you. It just flows in, and at no point did you have to push it out or pull it in. There is a sweetness in that. I have to say, that's really quite nice. And you get it, if and only if you're quiet, mentally quiet, at that turnaround point. But that, that's really the focus of your mindfulness, those tactile sensations, that now grounding quality. Even if you're focusing on the abdomen, still it's kind of imbued with that earth element, which is really so many of us need, most of us need, because we're still more prone to excitation than dullness, for the most part. Um, but that groundedness and that ongoing flow of attention, mindfulness, and I recall in the Buddha's own teachings of the full body, the, the whole body, the whole body of the breath, if we follow the Theravada interpretation, that you're there for the whole body of the in-breath, and then if you're counting, a brief little staccato punctuation mark, one, and then back to non-conceptuality, down the slide, releasing, releasing all the way, allowing the next breath to flow in. Frankly, it's not that boring. Because the breaths aren't really all the same. If you're just counting one, two, three, well, that's really totally the same. There's no variations of three to four, it's just three to four, or five to six. Utterly predictable and really, really boring. Whereas this, there are nuances there, and especially in terms of the duration of the breath, the flow of the breath, observing the breath, settling in its own natural rhythm. And in, in a way, on this energetic level, you really are watching your body, just as when you're settling the mind at the natural state. You're watching your mind unravel, unknot, come to kind of an equilibrium, loosen up, get more clarity. You're watching your mind heal. You get a front row seat. And here, energetically, there you are right in the body. Awareness right down there at the gut. There's a great big chakra down there, the big navel chakra, big, big power spot. And so there you are focusing down there and just releasing into it and observing it, you can really observe by way of the breathing and the flow of the breathing, the rhythm of the breathing, how your body then is balancing itself out energetically in terms of the prana. And you're watching it happen. And you, and you know, when, you, when it really starts flowing, you can actually feel it happening. The body is really getting balanced. It's getting mellow. It's, it's not getting lethargic. It's not wired. It's not agitated. It's right there in the middle. Okay. So, in terms of context, maybe this is the last point. In terms of context, that whole elephant and the cat business. And that is, when you're on the cushion, that's the time you really need to be content doing the practice. This is what you want to do, not just what you had to do, or this is the discipline, and you are making yourself do it. But, you know, content and having few desires. But the broader context is we're slowly approaching the end of this retreat is that making a kind of segueing into or transitioning into, perhaps a bit further than we've gone in the past, into a way of life that is really moving out of the, the flow of modernity, which is really kind of the flow of samsara. It's not just our modern times that are to blame, so to speak. Um, but moving away when there's a bit, of, a bit of empty time, you know, when you're not on the cushion, not immediately looking for some stimulation. And I would say that is absolutely normal 
for modernity and pretty much samsara. And that is, as soon as we have nothing to do, you're in the car, right? And there it is, and the traffic's not too heavy, and so, so what do you do? What do most people do? Give me some stimulation, you know. Turn on the radio. Turn on something. Give, you know, give me something here. Start talking. So you just, and, and people often talking, just talking, and then you wonder at the end of the conversation, why did you do that? You know, there was, you, you actually did contribute a little bit to global warming there. So that was the downside. What was the upside of that half an hour of conversation? Really, what was the point? You know? And so often there just isn't any at all. It's just speaking out of mental afflictions. Craving for this, hostility for this. Oh, did you hear what you know, Romney did today? Oh, did you hear the latest stupid thing that Newt Gingrich said today in American politics? Blah, 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 blah. You know, did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, tell me, tell me. Oh, yeah, that really pisses me off, too. And, uh, and then the conversation's over, and all you did was disturb your prana. That was the end result. No, no benefit, no insights, no nothing. It just, you filled the air with talking just because you wanted some stimulation. So coming back to kind of, so in between sessions, in, when lapses, when you're not on demand. If you're married, you're on demand. That is, you be a responsible, loving, caring, engaged spouse. That's good. That's part of marriage. Likewise, parents. Likewise, family. Likewise, friends and so forth. Job and all of that. Many things, many legitimate and meaningful demands on our time. All good. But then when there are those times when there's no demands on our time, the natural response is then to act as a stimulation junkie, a hedonic junkie. Just give me anything to arouse and stimulate the mind. And then, of course, if, if we continue in that habit pattern, and then we try to meditate for a while, and there's no radio, there's no television, there's no internet, and so forth, then we just turn on the radio from inside. I mean, we didn't even have to do it. It just turns on by itself. It's called rumination. And there it is, you know, just more noise more chit-chat, because that's what we're doing off the cushion. So as we do off the cushion, that's just bound to carry over onto, onto the cushion. If you have really good habits of mindful presence, thinking when it's valuable, turning off the thinking when it's not, being totally engaged, mindful, attentive, and non-conceptual, and then you go over to meditation, you can do the same thing, because it will carry right over. There was one other point, but if it doesn't come up quickly, we'll just go directly to meditation. It's one of those broader issues. Yeah. I think that's enough for now. Um, are there any questions? That we've, we've been through the mindfulness of breathing many times in terms of sheer technique. Any questions right now before we jump in? I would be kind of surprised if there were. Okay, good. Let's just go on in. It will be a silent session. As you're settling, this is a final point. Is it coming up again? I think maybe I just lost it again. It just came up like a seal. What? Yeah. <laughs> down again. Yes, it is. That sense, and as you're lying down, just mellow down, this, this will in fact be the last comment. But when you're just resting there, and you're content just to be, 
because we're, we're moving definitely in the direction of just awareness of awareness. Here, and you're just being mindfulness of the in and out breath happening to you. And if you can be content there, then coming from that contentment, that stillness, that presence, that sense of ease, of comfort within your own skin, within your own mind, that it's really just okay to be you and just to be there. And that's really okay. And you're satisfied. Because there's enough of a flow of eudaimonic well-being that you're not like some preta going out looking for something to hunt and forage on. If you have that, then when you do come out of meditation, you'll be coming from a place of contentment, from a place of fullness, of contentment, so that you're coming out not reacting, but really ready to act, to engage, not out of depletion, but out of fullness. Right? You're not coming out because you're desperate or needy. You're coming out because you're full, you're well-charged, you're balanced, you're poised, you're ready to do something meaningful. And you can imagine then, I mean, there's a beautiful symbol for an awful lot, many, many things larger than that. Interpersonal relationships of all kinds, including romantic. If one is approaching the relationship, the other person, with a sense of fullness, a contentment, a contentment in your own skin, and then you approach the other person in that way, then you're coming really much better poised to engage in an I-you relationship, attending to the other person as a person with a fullness. You're aware of your own personhood. You're aware of your own subjectivity. You're, you're comfortable with that. And you're ready to really attend to the other person, allowing that other person to become real for you. right? But you're not approaching that other person as in an I-it relationship, like, man, I'm dissatisfied, man, I'm restless, man, I feel kind of crummy. Uh, what can you do for me? I-it. Stimulate me, gratify me, make me happy, because I feel pretty crappy over here. But what can you do for me? Maybe you can, you know, fill in the missing, missing blanks in my own life. So as soon as we're approaching anything, a job, children, friends, spouse, anything, with coming out with a preta mode, of, boy, am I incomplete. Boy, I'm dissatisfied. I'm uncomfortable in my skin. I'm restless. I'm agitated. I'm feeling depressed. I'm, but what can you do for me? Well, that's not a really great way to start a relationship of any kind, right? Because it's already self-centered. I'm deplete. I'm depleted. I'm inadequate. I'm deficient. Where can you, what can you do for me? And of course, then sometimes there's a complementarity because the other person's approaching you in the same way and you find, okay, my deficiencies are complementing your deficiencies and so let's get together and like two cripples le leaning on each other, right? I've got, a, I've got a right leg, you've only got a left leg. Okay, let's see if we can walk, walk through life together. <laughs> Not an optimal way to start a relationship because the other person is bound to let you down. Literally. Oh, yeah. That was enough. But I think that was actually worthwhile. Let's go. Now we get to be silent for 24 minutes. Hola, so. There was a question that came up uh, today. It was from Maria. It was such a good question that I thought, so what I gave her is just a very short answer during our private meeting, because uh, I thought it was relevant to all of us here. A bit theoretical, but it's very close to experience as well. And here's the question, if I may paraphrase your question. Uh, and that is this substrate consciousness you've now heard many, many times that when you've achieved shamatha, you're resting in it. 
and, and I mean resting in it, not doing anything, then it's blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. Okay? Or in the Theravada tradition, there you are resting in the bhavanga, and just recall that other angle, that other view on the same experience, that in the bhavanga, all of the javana, you might recall that Pali term, the javana, I find it very easy to remember because it's like java, caffeine, you know, coffee, uh, that the activity of the mind has subsided. So, so the javana is all of the activities of the mind, and that includes sensory perceptions, uh, imagination, conceptualization, memory, and so forth and so on. When you're resting in the bhavanga, all the, it's like a seesaw. And that is when the, when the javana are all down, when they've all gone dormant, then the bhavanga gets up. Okay? But then when the, bhavanga, when the javana come up, they're activated, then the bhavanga goes invisible. So it's like a seesaw. Yeah? So there we are. But now we're coming back to this, this Sanskrit term, alai vijnana, that I'm translating as substrate consciousness, of course. Those of you who have some background in Buddhism, especially in Mahayana Buddhism, and then more, even more especially in the Yogacara or Chittamatra, mind-only school, so if you've studied this somewhat, then you'll know that one of the common translations for this alai vijnana is storehouse consciousness, storehouse consciousness. And so this is said to be, you know, in the, in the Yogacara view, or mind-only view, Chittamatra, this is the, that, that dimension of consciousness, that continuum of consciousness, that carries all the karmic seeds, so seeds of karma, of all of your voluntary, intentional activities, uh, the seeds of, also the seeds of mental afflictions, but also the seeds of virtues, of compassion, and so forth and so on, the seeds of memories. They're stored not in neurons, they're stored in, in the Buddhist view, they're not stored in chemicals, they're stored in a continuum of consciousness that gets activated by chemicals. So you can have an electric stimulus, a microelectrode inserted into your brain, and inserting They've done this, but a very, very tiny, minute little ganglia of neurons, so a little small collection of inter interconnected neurons, give it a very, very extremely subtle electronic stimulation, and lo and behold, a specific memory will come out. Okay? So that leads people to believe, oh, the memory is in the chemicals. And the Buddha said, no, that's, that's reading more into that than is actually there. It is to say that that ganglia of neurons is associated with, correlated with specific memories, but it's just the door. The memories are not in the, in the neurons, the memories are there. But now, so that was just a little bit of a tangent. But here is the real question. And that is, if this alaivajnana, the substrate consciousness, is the storehouse of all that stuff from, who knows, countless past lifetimes, all those kind of things, memories, mental afflictions, karmic propensities of all kinds and so forth, then when you're resting in the substrate consciousness, why is it not like dropping in a from, uh, by way of a parachute into a zoo? You know, just with roaring lions and giraffes and snails and snakes and puppy dogs and everything else, but all just yammering away. Why is it, it not just a din of noise? Because now you've gone right into, you know, the repository, all of all of that. Or if you looked at it very briefly from a Freudian perspective, now you've been dropped into your subconscious. Why is it not just an uproar of lust and, and death wish and all kinds of primal impulses? Whereas they say, oh no, it's peaceful, it's, it's luminous, non-conceptual, and blissful. So it's a really good question, and that's why I wanted to make it public. could be useful. The key here is to recognize, going back to the Pali tradition, that when you're resting in the bhavanga, all of the javana have temporarily gone silent. So whatever those memories were, you're not remembering them now. Whatever those impulses, craving, hostility, compassion, generosity, and so forth and so on, the memories, all that kind of stuff, when you're resting in the bhavanga, 
they're all dormant. They're all quiet. It's like Betty Pie. They went to sleep. But this is the beauty of it. When you just fall into ordinary deep sleep, your mental afflictions go to sleep. But so do you. So there you are. I mean, finally the mind is quiet. And then you go, (laughs) you're not even there to enjoy it. (laughs) Finally a bit of peace and quiet. And you miss it entirely, right? So it still has that beneficial effect. But you can't enjoy it because you don't know anything, including the fact that, wow, all the kids are asleep. You know, all you rambunctious kids of mental afflictions and so forth. So this is, that, that is, but I'm going to elaborate a little bit further. But that, in a nutshell, is why when you're just resting in the bhavanga, it's peace and quiet. In that, again, this papasajitta, this papasachitta, this brightly shining mind. So they're from the Theravada tradition. That's, that sounds pretty nice. You're just resting in a brightly shining mind, sheer luminosity, very pleasant, has that quality of sukha and so forth non-conceptual, because all of those imprints, all those latent propensities, all those samskaras or sankaras, they're called in, in Pali, they're all dormant. They're all dormant. Now, while you're resting there, having achieved shamatha, this means that you've crossed the threshold into the form realm. Okay? So you're not, so you're right on the threshold, but you've actually, you've seen the promised land. You've stepped over into, you've crossed the threshold. You're not totally immersed there as you would be in the actual state of the first jhana, but that's where you are. You've now gained access to the form realm, which means as long as you're there, and this is very important actually, as long as you're there resting in shamatha, so I'm going to pop quiz, does any kind of craving or attachment arise when you're just resting in shamatha? What's the answer? Yes. What kind? Yeah, Miles has it exactly right. And dot, 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 attachment to the bliss, maybe attachment to luminosity, maybe attachment to non-conceptuality. And that is a clinging, it's a craving, it's an attachment. But so, so then how is that better than the just craving, clinging, and attachment that we have in ordinary waking life? And the deal is, and this is really very important, and that is when you're resting there in the substrate consciousness having achieved shamatha, for the time being, as long as you're there, all of the mental afflictions associated with the desire realm are gone. Okay? All your craving, attachment, clinging, were things in the desire realm for sex, for prestige, for possessions, for power, for all the other stuff, all the, they're called the, the bounties of the desire realm. Well, they're all gone. That is, the, the bounties are kind of out of sight anyway, but there's no attachment for them. There's no clinging or desire. Okay? So the mental affliction of craving or grasping attachment that is there is going to be on a much subtler level, namely the kind of attachment, mental affliction of attachment, belonging to the form realm. And that's the, so that's this bliss and so forth. But of course, this is not a hedonic bliss. This is a eudaimonic bliss and luminosity as well. Okay? And then, because you're resting there, in the substrate consciousness, and the five jhana factors are up, and the five obscurations are down, then one of those that is down is ill will. So anger is not going to rise, not when you're resting in the substrate consciousness. Craving, yes, but within that sphere, there's nothing to obstruct your, obstruct your, your craving, because there you are, you're in your own little cocoon, right? divorced from all appearances, so there's nothing to be angry about. One other nice point, and that is, karasa, kam komala mige me. It says in Tibetan, in the higher realms, the form realm and the formless realm, there's no enactment of non-virtue. There's no non-virtue. 
you're not accumulating any non-virtue while resting in the substrate consciousness, having achieved shamatha, or achieving first jhana, one, two, three, four jhana, or the formless realm, there's no, there's no accumulation of negative karma. There's nothing there that, you, that you'll be doing that will propel you downwards. The seeds are there. Yeah, I mean, when you come out, you can still get angry and so forth. But that's kind of a nice perk as well. Now, I believe it was, I believe it was James. Uh, not quite sure. I could be wrong. It could have been good old, but one of, one of the young men here uh, raised the issue, or maybe it was actually Quinn, <laughs> what, you know, one of the young guys, uh, raised the issue, you know, when you're resting right there in awareness of awareness, and you're really tasting it, this, this is consciousness. I'm getting it. I'm getting it straight, you know. Then why isn't this inherently real? That which the Madhyamaka, was it you, Quinn? Yeah? Yeah, okay, it was Quinn. Um, that is, according to middle way of you, and this is going to be relating back to the question from Maria, middle way of you, Madhyamaka view, nothing in the universe, not from atoms all the way up to Buddha mind, exists by its own inherent nature, independently of conceptual designation. Right? It's conceptual designation that draws them out, so to speak. And then there they are defined with their contours and they have their characteristics and so forth. But in the absence of conceptual designation, the borders vanish and nothing arises having its characteristics. Right? But now when you're in this relatively, at least relatively non-conceptual mode of just experiencing awareness straight, just straight, and you're not thinking about it, you're not labeling it, you're not constructing it, you're just drinking it in, then why is this not inherently real? From its own side, by its own nature, why is this not inherently real? In other words, why don't we become chittamatrans, might only, and say, hey, those, those, those madhyamikas, those middle way people, they fell into nihilism. Because, hey, this is about as real as it gets. This is straight scoop. I'm, I'm just like a straight whiskey. Got straight consciousness. No diluted, no additives, just boom, there it is. So what's wrong with Jitamatra? And then we see, when you're resting in that, oh, well, it actually makes sense that all appearances are simply appearances illuminated by this awareness, and those appearances have no existence other than awareness, and the, and the objects are simply imputed on the basis of appearances, so they don't exist independently of awareness. Therefore, Jitamatra, mind only. So what's wrong with mind only already? Right? And so... We're not going to solve that in you know, a five-minute talk, because there are extremely brilliant people who were Chittimatrans for their whole lives. But I think the, the most useful way, the most insightful way that I know of to try to probe more deeply there is that the Madhyamaka view here is one of the central ways in is to attend to anything, anything whatsoever, and, and then ask, OK, what are the attributes of that of that entity. What qualities does it bear? What are its attributes, right? And if it has no attributes, then you have to say, well, then it doesn't exist. And there's no way to identify it, because we identify anything, whether it's Ian or whether it's the cell phones on the floor, by way of the qualities of the entity in question. So I know Ian has that face. That's Ian's face. So that's where Ian is. He's over there, because I recognize him by his face. From below, couldn't quite tell. But, oh, that's Ian. And so, but Ian is not his face, right? But, oh, but that's his face. And so, and likewise, cell phones. How do I know it's a cell phone? By, by its qualities. And I say, well, that's a cell phone. Why? The qualities, are they, are they the same as a cell phone? No. But I apprehend the cell phone by way of the property. So whenever you identify any object, any subject, 
We do it by way of apprehending its qualities. But now we see there's going to be, this is going to be now a bit thin ice, right? And that is, I apprehend it by way of its properties. But now exactly when do I apprehend it? So I'm looking over there at Ian. Okay, yep, now that I see his face, yeah, that body fits. That body bit, yeah, they, they go together. This is not a you know, slate of hand here. But the lower part, neck down, that's not, that's not Ian. That's just neck down. And the head, that's just a head. Yeah, that's not a person. That's just a head. That'd be kind of spooky if it was just all by itself. So that's just a head. And so that's not Ian. And that's all I'm getting here. I'm just getting a head and everything beneath the head. And then if I hear his voice, yeah, that's Ian's voice, but then Ian's voice is not Ian either. And then if I were a clairvoyant, you just could look, you know, like looking into a, an aquarium and just look right into Ian's mind and see all the fish swimming around and the moss and the snails and everything in there. I say, yeah, that's a snail and that's a fish and that's moss and those are bubbles. But none of those are Ian either. And I'm getting, I'm, I'm clairvoyant. I'm seeing everything that's there. I can see things that he can't see. And I'm saying, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening. It's a very interesting goldfish bowl there, all kinds of fish in there. And, and, yep, and then if I, you know, I clairvoyant and knew everybody else's mind, I say, yep, that's Ian's mind all right. Just the one thing I'm not quite seeing. Have you guessed it? Where's Ian? I mean, I got, I got him now three-dimensional. Let's say I have also x-ray vision. And I'm seeing, yep, there's his heart, there's his marrow, there's his intestines, Ugh. okay, moving right on. You know, there's his blood veins and so forth. Yep, I, I'm 3D, 3D transparent psychic vision of every aspect of his body, every cell, every neuron. I'm, I'm totally getting him. I'm seeing all of him. Wow, super duper, yeah? Totally transparently seeing every element of his body. And I'm psychic, see every element of his body, of his mind, and yep, that's his body, that's his mind, nobody else's, unique in the whole universe, that's Ian's. The only thing I'm not seeing is the person who has all those. That should give us a bit of pause, right? And then we ask, okay, now let's come back to the interesting point, and I will relate this to, uh, to Maria's question. Consciousness. Do you apprehend consciousness skipping its attributes and just looking at consciousness, or do you recognize consciousness by way of its attributes? Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Does consciousness have attributes? Not just ones you've learned. Okay, if you learned, and I think, so it came up yesterday, a little quiz. Okay, consciousness, as it's understood in Buddhism, and it's a purely phenomenological or experiential definition. Consciousness has the qualities that consciousness has the property, the function that it illuminates appearances. Without consciousness, there would be no appearances anywhere in the universe. And consciousness has that distinctive quality that it cognizes, it knows. Because you are conscious, therefore you know. If you are not conscious, you wouldn't know anything, any more than a robot or a computer or those cell phones there. They have lots of information, but they don't know what information's in there. Right? Lots of information, photos, music, text, email messages, and all kinds of stuff. You can know it, but the cell phone doesn't know it because it doesn't know anything. Right? So when you're experiencing your own consciousness, there you are, getting it naked like the straight whiskey. How do you know this is consciousness? By way of its attributes? Or are you seeing consciousness that has the attributes? Which one are you seeing? And then it gets even more interesting. When we look at borders, 
And not just borders, how big is your mind? Because we're going to get lost in that one really quickly because you can't find the borders. But just the simple demarcation of mind, of consciousness and not consciousness. So I will say this piece of paper is not consciousness. It's not consciousness. When I look at it, I'm not seeing consciousness. It's not conscious, it's not consciousness, just not. Okay? So this is one of the things in the universe that is not consciousness. Right? Neurons are not consciousness. Synapses, dendrites, glial cells. The electricity in the brain is not consciousness. It's just electricity. And the chemicals are just chemicals. So one of the oddest theories about nature of mind-brain relationship that I've seen by a very intelligent man whom I know is that you know, always insisting that it's got to be material, it's got to be physical, got to be physical. So one of the themes, one of the, and it's, it's written, published in a, you know, academic press, is that the neurons in your brain have a kind of a dual personality. Objectively, they're just chemicals and electricity. They're neurons, they're cells. And cells that biologists study, they can see them. They have clairvoyant vision of cells. They can see everything there is to be seen about cells. You can do that with microscopes and all the other wonderful technology they have. So on the one hand, the neurons in your brain and the, and the neural connections, the synapses and all of that, for objectively speaking, they're just chemicals. But they have a dual side. Subjectively speaking, the same neurons are also emotions, desires, memories, and all this objective. And it's the same thing, the same entity, and they're really neurons, of course, that have an objective aspect, and that's chemicals and electricity, and a subjective aspect, and that is, I feel good. I'm dreaming, I'm remembering, and so forth. It's, it's marvelously ingenious and crazy because these are just chemicals. So the question that I ask, what I've never heard an answer, and I know this man, there's no answer that he's given, as far as I know, is exactly when did chemicals, even very complex ones, like neurons or the whole network of neurons, at what point did they enter into this dual personality mode? At what point did they take on another life of the subjective? And what enabled them to do so? How did chemicals somehow, somehow become magical? That objectively, it's Clark Kent. Subjectively, it's Superman. It's dreams, it's images, it's subjective experiences and so forth. It's like, whoa, what telephone booth did you come from? You know, exactly how did that happen? That mere chemicals have suddenly now a dual personality, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Clark Kent and Superman. How did that happen? It's magical thinking. It's crazy. But it's a desperate attempt to somehow make sure that consciousness is nothing other than matter or a function of matter. So coming back to our immediate experience of consciousness, it's not just the borders of where does consciousness end, where does the space of the mind start and end. We're not going to find that. But as we are experiencing consciousness directly, as we're experiencing that, we are bound to experience, in, in, in awareness of awareness, something that is not consciousness, such as a mental image. Right? Rumination. Still happens, yeah? Happens? Okay. A mental image comes up. Is mental image, a mental image, mom, an image of mom, is that consciousness, the, the image itself? And I think, no, that's, it's, it's illuminated by consciousness, it's known by consciousness, it appears to consciousness, but that's not consciousness. An image isn't consciousness. Any more than an image in a mirror is consciousness. It just, it's just an image. How about a thought? Mary had a little lamb. 
Is that consciousness? No, it's just a thought that was illuminated by consciousness, known by consciousness. But Mary had a little lamb, that's just a thought. So, okay, good. Now, exactly where does consciousness end and not consciousness begin? Where do you draw the line? And that line may be drawn by conceptual designation. Consciousness, not consciousness. Where's the border? Conceptual designation is the cookie cutter that comes in and says, this is consciousness, and it has the attributes of knowing and luminosity. And this is a mental image. That is neither knowing nor is it luminosity in the consciousness sense of the term. It is illuminated by consciousness. And this is a, this is a pair of glasses, and this is a paper, and so forth, and they're not consciousness either, the cookie cutter. Now I'm going to relate this back to Maria. Why do the Majimika, if you want to have a bit, a bit more dose of, of, of Buddhist philosophy, the Majimikas, the, the proponents of Majamaka philosophy, middle way philosophy, Nagarjuna, and so forth, why do they reject, reject totally, kitten caboodle, the Alaya Vijnana in the Prasangika Majamaka, Tsongkhapa, Shantideva, Chantikirti, and Buddha Palita, and, and so forth? Why do they reject it entirely? And they say, no, it's just, all they'll go is that there's a subtle continuum of mental consciousness. Subtle continuum of mental consciousness. But they're, but they're seeing how this alaya vijnana is defined and elaborated upon and developed, and there are whole books written on the alaya vijnana within the Chittamata context. And the Madhyamaka just goes, uh-uh, Don't, doesn't exist. And why? Number one, the Chittamantans are insisting that it's inherently existent. But then you can say, well, okay, just say it's not inherently existent. We'll just keep it, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We exist, uh, accept alaya vijnana, but we just don't accept that it's inherently existent. But there's more to it than that. And now we finally get back to Maria's question. And that is the Chittamatra says it's inherently existent, and it really is the storehouse. It's the carrier. Like Noah's Ark carries all the animals, your substrate consciousness carries all the imprints, memories, karma, propensities, all that stuff, seeds of mental affliction, seeds of virtue. It's a big Noah's Ark. It's a great big snake of Noah's Ark, you know, streaming through time and carrying this massive weight, this massive burden, this load, this load of all these imprints. And that's, I think, really, it's at that point, that's when the Majyamaka says, oh, the heck with it. It doesn't exist at all. Because there's nothing in the universe that is inherently really carrying imprints, karma, and so forth and so on. I thought, and why I thought I would venture in here uh, is there is such a cool analogy. I think it's really illuminating analogy for modern technology, and you've heard it before. And that is, since we have these cell phones there, imagine you, you send, oh, please send me, please, please take a photo of Miles here and then send it over to my, to my cell phone. And so click, click, and then, and then, ah, that's what Miles looked like. Cool. Delete. <laughs> no, no, just joking. But the, the fact that we can do that, you can take the photo and then from your, from your cell phone to my cell phone, and, oh, I, I got it. Okay, something was transmitted from your cell phone to mine, bouncing off a node someplace, right? And what was it? It wasn't just electromagnetic fields. It wasn't just electromagnetic fields. If you shine a light, shine a light on my cell phone, it's picking up electromagnetic fields from the light source up above in the ceiling. That's electromagnetic fields, right? It's also 
there's radio waves and all kinds of things ca coming through that this is not picking up right now. Uh, but we say, and this is what I think is such a cool parallel, is that you're not just sending electromagnetic fields, you're not just sending photons, if you want the, the bullet model of, of light or electromagnetic radiation. You're not just sending energy from one to the other, otherwise it would just be energy. Like, why? Okay, there's no information there, it's just, okay, I got it, it's bright, that's it. And there are radio, radio waves, it's just a frequency. It's just a frequency. There's no, there's no information in radio waves per se, it's just a frequency, right? And so we say, though, that the electromagnetic fields generated, sent by your cell phone to my cell phone, we say they're, they're carrying information. Because Michael just took a photo of Miles, and then I wanted that photo, I want that for my address book, let's say. Good. And so then, so to, yeah, please take it, because my camera doesn't work right now. And so he sends me, he sends me the, the electromagnetic field generated, sent by his cell phone to my cell phone. And now, lo and behold, I have Miles's photo, and I put it in my address book. Where's the energy? No, sorry, where's the information? Because that's what this is really all about. It's not just sending an electromagnetic field. It's that information of Miles's photo. That's what's being sent. It could be music, it could be text, but here in, in this case, it's information of the image, right? So now we have something completely physical being sent from Michael's cell phone to my cell phone, right? And it's physical, it's an electromagnetic field. Any, a, a, a mindless mechanical device can pick up the fact that, oh yes, uh, electromagnetic fields were just detected, right? Yeah, got it. Some photons struck the photon detector, right? That's physical, that's flat out physical. But we say that those electromagnetic fields sent from one cell phone to the next, they're carrying information, otherwise what's the point? But now, and here's where we get the consciousness, and consciousness being the carrier of karma, memories, and so forth, which is information. If you looked, if you could be, again, Superman with clairvoyant vision, and you could actually observe the photons being sent from one cell phone to the other, and you can see every single one of them, or if you like the wave, the wave model better, you're seeing the electromagnetic field sent from one cell phone to the other. If you could look right at that field, and see every single photon in it, the frequency and all of that, and just looking right at the field itself, would you see in the field any information? No. If you're just looking at the field itself, like they say orthogonally, see, there it goes from that cell phone to this cell phone, you come in orthogonally from the side, but you have perfect vision, 100% vision, of that field being transmitted from one cell phone to the next. And you can see everything about that field as it's moving through space at the speed of light. You'll not see any information. And yet, Michel, as an intelligent, conscious person, focusing on, it could be Miles, but it could be a cushion, because Miles being conscious is not the issue here. But it's Michel, and then sending that, sending that over to mine, Michel looks at it and says, oh yeah, that, that picture will do, I'll send it to Alan now. I look at it and said, yeah, that's just the photo I wanted. Thank you, Michael. Information was transmitted. There's no question. Otherwise, I wouldn't have Miles' photo here. But if you look for it in the nature of the electromagnetic field sent from one cell phone to the next, and that was all that was sent, look into it. Nowhere in those photons, nowhere in that field do you find any information at all. In other words, the information is not inherently existent in the field or in the photons. Nowhere to be found. And this is the Madhyamaka catch.
and that is in a continuum of consciousness carrying through, carrying through from one lifetime to the next, if you just look right into the consciousness, now this finally relates back to Marie's question, look right into the consciousness that's carrying, that ostensibly is carrying all of those imprints of karma and so forth, you don't see it. That's not there. It's just not to be found. Right? Any more than you'll find the information if you just looked at the fields being sent from one cell phone to the next. It's not there. It's not there from its own side, inherently existent. And yet we say, but didn't, didn't Michal send me the information? And I say, yeah, sure, there's proof. Look, there's Miles's photo. And how did it get there? By way of the electromagnetic fields. Yeah, but I looked in the electromagnetic fields. That information, that photo, wasn't in the electromagnetic fields, but there wasn't even, I couldn't even see the information in the electromagnetic fields. It was just electromagnetic, it was just energy. So it's there, but it's not there. It's, it's not there in the sense it's not inherently existent, already there from its own side. It is there relative to cognitive frames of reference. Michel consciously took a photo. He consciously sent it to me. I consciously picked it up. Relative to Michel's conscious mind, relative to my conscious mind, then information was in those electromagnetic fields. Take us out of the equation, so to speak. There's no information in those fields at all. Quite interesting, then. It's there, but it's not there. It's there relatively speaking, but it's not there absolutely or inherently speaking. And what is absolutely crucial here is consciousness. If there's no consciousness, there's no information. If this were a robot, and Miles could be conscious, that's no problem, because he's just the, the photographee. But if a robot just went click, click, and then from here to here, and Michael and I have you know, b- both dumped our cell phones in the, in the garbage bin, and nobody ever picks them up. There was no information. There was no information sender. There was no information receiver. Therefore, there was no information. It was just energy that was sent from one device to another. That's all. Quite interesting to my mind. So we end. This was a long question, but I think it is really fascinating. Uh, and on this point, came up and then it slipped down again. It's quite interesting. Ah, yeah. In the Pali Canon, there are no references to prana, as far as I've ever seen. I've never heard of anybody saying there was. A prana of the elements, earth, water, fire, air, of course, yeah. But the term for air is vayu, or vata, depending on the context. But vayu is, is the air element, wind element. But prana is a different term different term, even though they're translated in the same term in, in Tibetan. But it's prana, it's a different term. But you're looking, but the prana is the, are these energies coursing through the body, and some of which are very closely related to consciousness. And it's prana. Now we move into Mahayana Vajrayana territory. What carries on from one lifetime to the next? Well, on the one hand, call it subtle, continual mental consciousness. Madhyamaka says, yep, we go along with that. That carries on, subtle, continual mental consciousness, out of which emerges coarse levels of consciousness, namely psyche. Yes, that, right? Dzogchen say, hey, we clean up the mess with Alaya Vijnana, we're going to use it. It's not inherently existent, does not inherently store imprints and all of that, so we're going to use it again. But we are adhering to Madhyamaka, we're just going to keep the term, we like it. And it's nice to break it down into Alaya Vijnana, so we're keeping it, but not in the Chittamatra sense not inherently existent, not inherently a storehouse, really carrying stuff, right? Because the imprints carried are only relative to modes of consciousness. So consciousness, 
in the Buddhist view, and I think it's for all schools, consciousness, the flow of awareness or consciousness, is immaterial and non-physical. Immaterial, not made of atoms, not made of particles of matter, but is also non-physical in the sense that it has no physical attributes at all. Nothing that any physical device can measure. No weight, no mass, no speed, no shape, no size, no color. There's no physical attributes whatsoever. And there we have it. And this, this should be the end of the conversation, but unfortunately it's not. But if something has no physical attributes, there's just no reason in the world to say it's physical. And yet there it is. All the instruments of technology cannot measure any mental state whatsoever. But materialists say, well, never mind, it's still physical. Why? Because it exists. I just find the, the answer is utterly kind of ridiculous, frankly. But consciousness has no physical attributes whatsoever. So, but that, now that's straight, that's straight, you know, almost pan-Buddhist. But now we go into Vajrayana. It gets a bit more interesting. What carries on from one lifetime to another? Okay, subtle continued mental consciousness, a.k.a. substrate consciousness. But something else as well. Something else as well. And if we're going to stick with the terminology subtle continuum of mental consciousness, what is that entwined with or of the same nature as subtle continuum of prana, which is not material in the sense of not composed of atoms, of particles of matter, okay? But it is physical. It has physical location. It has, just for starts, physical location, but also it's physical in the sense that prana, like coursing through your body, the prana related to consciousness in your heart chakra, it's physical in the sense that it directly interfaces with the physicality of your body. It's physical. Your body is physical and material. It's both, right? Cosmosum atom, of course, if it's, if it's material, it's got to be physical. But if it's physical, it doesn't have to be material. Now, that's not some z- kooky Buddhist physics there. That's straight physics. Electromagnetic fields are physical. They're measurable. But they're not composed of particles of matter. They travel through the vacuum, where there's no matter whatsoever, but there's still part of electromagnetic fields there. They are physical, but they're not composed of elements of, of matter. So prana is physical. It's not material, not composed of matter. But now we look at these two intertwined, two, it's often, often called lung sem, lung sem, lung sem, energy mind, energy mind, lung sem, energy hyphen mind, subtle energy mind. That carries on from lifetime to lifetime. The energy component is physical, but not material. The consciousness component is neither physical nor material. Right? And the two are simply indivisible. You can't pull them apart and say, okay, here's the energy part, here's the consciousness part. They're of, really, they're of an indivisible alloy. And now we look at something a little bit like this philosopher's notion, and that is... View it from one side, they're physical. That is, when you're looking at the, the energy side, you see the physical aspect. Look at it from the other side, and it's non-physical because it's just consciousness. But they're two of the same nature. So there, there's, there's the theory. Now, where this gets really interesting in Vajrayana, specifically Kala Chakra, is, all right, now there is something here that's carrying through from li- lifetime to lifetime, moving through time. It's this alloy of physical, non-physical, the two of being of the same nature. That is, you can't separate them and see them as totally separate entities. Where does karma come in? 
because karma is clearly carried from one body to the next. And this is the only thing linking them, just like it's just electromagnetic fields linking that cell phone with this cell phone when you transmit the photo, right? That's the only thing connecting, nothing else. So in a manner of speaking, not inherently speaking, but in a manner of speaking, since the only thing connecting that cell phone with this cell phone is electromagnetic fields being discharged from one and received another, then you have to say, well, okay, then the, the information came along with those electromagnetic fields. It didn't come off some other way. It didn't come any faster. It didn't come any slower. It came at exactly the same speed as the, elect the transmission of the electromagnetic field. And so when it comes to this alloy of energy mind, it said, this is straight Kala Chakra, that it is the energy, in fact, something physical, very, very subtle physical. That is what is configured by karma. That's configured by memories, by past life experiences of all kinds. Your propensities for anger, for compassion, for craving, for generosity, all of those. The configuration, just as you configure, configure a hard disk, or you configure electromagnetic fields so that they send information from here to there, that which is configured is actually the prana. It's like an energy field that's configured by all your past experiences. That's what's configured. And consciousness is just non-physical, luminous, clear, moving through time. So where I find this especially fascinating, and, and you can tell, I really find a lot of this fascinating, is in this utterly independent mode of inquiry of this group of scientists at the University of Virginia, 40 years of research on children who allegedly have past life recall. Well, that's interesting, and the evidence is pretty compelling. Well, how else could that child know about this you know, this past life and giving such detail, knowing people's names and so forth and so on. That's about information, of information memories stored. But where I think it was really surprised them, because obviously Ian Stephen, who started this research, clearly he had heard about children who allegedly had past life memories. And he got curious, got a grant, started doing research. It went, it's, go, it's going on to this day, even though he's passed away. But that's clearly just transference of, of knowledge, of memories from past life to the next life. What I suspect probably really surprised them was something that's described in some detail in this book where reincarnation and biology intersect. And that is in many cases, in many cases, the manner in which the previous person died, and usually in these cases where the children recall the past life, in most cases, the great majority of the cases, the past life was one in which, since these are ordinary kids, apart from their recalling past life, in the great majority of cases, the previous life, they had died a violent and unexpected death. They didn't die of old age. That was very rare. They died in the prime of life in an automobile accident. They were shot. They were strangled. They were, they were stabbed. But something violent, something unexpected, and pretty much in youth or prime of life. And they were just suddenly chopped. You know, they were making their plans. What are you going to do next year and the next year? And how many kids do you want and so forth? Then the guillotine comes down. And all their anticipations, their plans, all of their investment into the future, so launched, you know, because they're in the prime of life. The life is before them, they thought. And then suddenly the guillotine of unexpected violent death comes in. And then they are. And then suddenly they're in the bardo and they're off to the next life. What the scientists found was in quite a number of cases, the manner of death, for example, a person gets a throat, throat cut, by act of great violence, dies, spends some time with Bardo, is born, a birthmark right across the neck. 
or a really famous one I remember so easily is a young Burmese boy. His temperament very different from other kids there in Burma. And he said in his pre previous life he had a clear memory of being a Japanese foot soldier who was there during the Second World War in Burma as one of the invaders, right? So not very welcome and not a, not a, not a way to make, make yourself popular because the Burmese really hated the Japanese. They treated them terribly. They treated pretty much everybody terribly that they invaded. But here's this little Burmese boy saying, in my past life, I was a Japanese soldier, and I was marching through the jungle in my squad, and an enemy fighter plane came down and strafed us, and I was hit, and I, I was dead by the time I hit the ground. It got me in the back, and bam, by the time I was on the ground, I was dead already. And that's how he died. So not exactly something to tell people to make yourself popular, but that was his memory. Well, how about the birthmarks? Three holes on the back of his, on, on his back, small holes, three, not, they're not holes, they're birthmarks. Three round birthmarks on the back, on his back, three or two, whatever. And then large ones on the front, entry and exit wounds, birthmarks. And they found this not just once or twice, which just be mere curiosity, coincidence, whatever. They found this again and again, the exact manner in which the person had been killed or injured to death. And the kind of the, the incisions, the impact on the body showed up as birthmarks in the second one in the next life. So that then, for these people who are op open-minded and thinking, man, go figure, how do we make sense of this? Because it happened not once or twice, it happened lots of times, and they show the photos in this book that I just mentioned, they show the photos. They show the account, and then here, here are the birthmarks. And so they had to try to make this intelligible, which is what scientists try to do of appearances. And so what they came up with is what, the, what Ian Stevens call, even Stevenson called a psychophore. And he said there must be some type of an energy field, we'll call it a psychophore, that's not just consciousness, but something physical that's transmitted from the person who just died, this horrible death. And those imprints on the body, since this field must somehow pervade the body, it made imprints on the energy field, this subtle energy field. It made an imprint. It configured it. And then that energy field together with consciousness took off. The person just died. The body molders in the grave. It decomposes, of course. But then that energy field together with consciousness comes in and then takes on a new form. But the residue of the configuration, the impact on that energy field, then manifests as birthmarks in the next body. Something physical together with something not physical. And that was a brand new idea. And they developed it in this book, and there's an enormous amount of data behind it. And then, then I went back to my Tibetan teachers and said, um, anything like that from your side? They said, oh, yeah. And then they would talk about not so much violent deaths, because it was not that common, and so many, many cases of Tugus being identified and so forth, or cases of reincarnation, but actually marking the body just before it dies, and then finding the mark come up on the next one. So something physical. So that was quite an elaborate answer. And, and I offer this not as religious dogma, because then suddenly my, my, my interest goes, oh, just, it's that, just something to believe in. But no, these scientists didn't get there by way of religion. They got there by looking, hey, these birthmarks, and look at the story of the kid. And, and, then, and then in many cases finding, yes, that person did die in that way, and lo and behold, there's the birthmark, and so forth. So quite interesting. But it would suggest, once again, that the actual imprints themselves of memories and all of that are not in the consciousness per se, they're configured in that energy field, so similar to the 
electromagnetic field sent from one cell phone to the other. But if you look right into the energy, you won't find it, right? But then relative consciousness, yep, there it is. That's, that's how it got transmitted from one to the other, okay? So that's that. So here's how did the pirate achieve shamatha? It's a question. Okay. How did the sh pirate achieve shamatha? And that's A, relax, release, and, re and return. R. Thank you. <laughs> you can tell that to your grand grandkids. Oh, lasso. And we'll have the other one for tomorrow. That was a long answer. Hopefully interesting. You're welcome. I find it so interesting that I'm happy to talk about it. Food for thought, and again, not just food for thought to think about it, but wow, this could be investigated. That could be cool. Okay, good. Enjoy your dinner. <laughs>